HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia, where cheese lovers, cheese makers, cheese nibblers, and cheese curious are all welcome. Find the really good stuff, meet the makers, and connect with fellow travelers on the cheese way of life. Visit wisconsincheese.com to learn more and sign up. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome chef, restaurateur, and author Sheldon Simeon. In today's episode, we'll talk to Sheldon about genuine Hawaiian food, his new cookbook, Cook Real Hawaii, and we'll hear Sheldon's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. For Julia, travel and food were deeply connected. Learning what was behind the dishes she discovered in France, or China, or even Norway, led to a lifelong interest in exploring how food connects to culture. One of Julia's favorite ways of understanding a new place, whether city, state, or country, was to talk to chefs. After her time in France, Julia realized that chefs make great cultural ambassadors. They not only understand what epitomizes the best food from a specific place, but also the people and ethos behind it. While Julia relished personally learning from chefs, she also loved giving chefs a wider platform to share not only their skills and favorite dishes, but also their understanding of where good food comes from, who makes it, and why we should value it. Someone who is Julia's kind of advocate is chef and restaurateur Sheldon Simeon. Born and raised in Hilo, on the big island of Hawaii, Sheldon's love of cooking comes straight from his family's Filipino roots. 
After attending culinary school in Hawaii and working in restaurants on Maui, Sheldon became well-known after competing on Bravo's Top Chef, winning fan favorite in both seasons 10 and 14, then garnering further acclaim after opening Star Noodle in Maui. He opened his first solo restaurant in Maui, Tin Roof, in 2016, which he continues to run with his wife Janice, serving local takeaway dishes. In 2018, he opened Lineage, his second solo restaurant serving traditional local Hawaiian fare in Walea on Maui. It was named a James Beard Award semifinalist for Best New Restaurant in 2019. However, in 2020, Sheldon left Lineage to focus on writing his first cookbook, Cook Real Hawaii, published in the spring of 2021 by Clarkson Potter. Sheldon joins us today to tell us more about the real food of Hawaii and to talk about his new cookbook. Welcome to the podcast, Sheldon. Aloha, Todd. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're glad you could be here. So tell us, how are things in Hawaii right now? You know, well, it's still paradise, if you're wondering, uh, out, out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's reassuring to hear. Uh, yeah, I live in a beautiful place. You know, like everywhere else, uh, this pa- past two years for restaurant-wise, it's been difficult. And, you know, we're trying to uh, kind of go with keeping our place paradise and keeping it safe. Um, it's nice to welcome back visitors and, uh, but give the islands a little bit of a rest uh, so that we can keep it in safe and in core for the people who live there. I mean, would you say the impact um, on Hawaii to the economy and to the health of the people was quite similar to what was going on in the mainland or did the natural environment and good weather help or how would you characterize it? You know, it was actually a, a moment that we had a pause in, in the islands and let our islands kind of give a, a time to rest. Uh, you know, in the beginning, we did have uh, no traveling to the islands. So all the locals got to enjoy our beaches and, you know, our roads and our mountains uh, as if it was uh, old Hawaii. And, uh, you know, as things we could get things more safe, uh, it was nice to welcome back uh, tourism back and get our economy started back up. And presumably the hit to the economy was profound since tourism is a big part. But what was also um, health-wise, would you say Hawaii, like in terms of people getting COVID and getting sick or even worse, dying, would you say it was pretty similar to the mainland? Or do you think Hawaii fared a bit better? I think it was uh, pretty similar to to what you would see. Uh, You know, in the beginning, we we did have a moment where there was – no cases, but being that we are an island and you know our resources are limited, we have to keep things uh, locked down and safe, uh, just so that we our our hospitals, you know, and our medical centers don't get overrun. Uh, you know, this last Delta virus uh, kind of put things for a spin, and uh, it did kind of hit the islands pretty hard. But I think we've got that under control. And, you know, hopefully our leaders can continue to guide us in the right direction and uh, make things safe for locals and visitors alike. Okay, well, what that that sounds like, like the right, right way to, to think about it. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. So I, turning to a, a little less morbid topic, I was hoping that you would break down because I, I know from looking at your work that this is really important to you. Tell us from your perspective, what the difference between Hawaiian food and Hawaii food is, and and why is that difference important to understand? 
Right. Uh, I think it's like two categories. You know, the uh, Hawaii foods encompasses all the food that they find in Hawaii. Uh, Hawaiian is that specific uh, food of the Kanakas, the the people who discovered Hawaii, uh, the native people, and you know them uh, those food traditions that they brought from uh, traveling across the Pacific Ocean and uh, and cultivated the land. So that's Hawaiian food is very specific. Again. The food of the native people, the Hawaiians, and then Hawaii food encompasses all the different cultures uh, that migrated to Hawaii and made it their home. Now, I like to say that I'm a native Californian because I was born in Oakland. And my understanding is you were born in Hilo, which in theory would make you, by usual American parlance, a native Hawaiian. But why do you feel so strongly uh, um, uh, about that distinction? Uh, We respect our different cultures there in in Hawaii and, you know, the Hawaiians were an amazing, amazing culture. Uh, They were the ones that set forth these islands to what magical place that they are. No one cared for the land and, and, uh, you know, made this land prosper more than the Hawaiians. So we set aside that that name strictly for those who made the journey over the Pacific Ocean. So so it's kind of like an honorific. It's like honoring that special legacy. Uh, totally. Uh, you know, uh, I could be Hawaiian in general just because I was born and raised there, but to be Kanaka, to be native, uh, I would never call myself that. And I think that's an amazing distinction for Hawaii compared to other states where maybe the the idea of the melting pot, or maybe because there isn't really a, a, a well, maybe as strong a remaining indigenous population. Um, but I, I wanted you to be able to share that because I know it's important to you. What, what are some of the examples of the flavors that you think really epitomize the food of Hawaii that, that particularly maybe even represent this, this fusion of cultures that now exists there? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, it's amazing that we have all these different cultures that come together so seamlessly. Uh, again, it was the work of the Hawaiians who set forth, you know, the respect of uh, their people and the land and the, every culture that came after it uh, had to go abide by, by those respectful kind of rules. So the food of Hawaii is, I don't like to call it a fusion uh, because it's not really blended. It just kind of, lives in harmony with each other, you know? So uh, the first influence was that of the Hawaiians who got there. The next were the migration of sugarcane plantation workers. Uh, My grandparents, the Filipinos, that alongside the Japanese, the Koreans, uh, there was a Portuguese influence, a Puerto Rican, all of that all coming together, their cultures. And then as years progress, we celebrate each and every one of those cultures in Hawaiian that comes together in all the food that you see now today. And do you think there's a natural blending? Because obviously what you de- described, the, 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 as you described, the native Hawaiians came from Polynesia. So it's all Pacific Rim cultures. Do you think that they, they have a certain ability to blend because they are from a similar 
origin of geography or that's not really relevant? Yeah, I think the blending also comes from what what was available. Uh, A lot of these cultures uh, had to mimic the flavors and the recipes of what they had uh, back in its original setting, uh, but with the limitations of what was available in Hawaii. So you tend to see these crossovers because of the same similar ingredients had to be used across the board for a different type of uh, the different type of cuisines. I uh, like one example is you'll see Japanese and Korean food in Hawaii very similar in flavors that mostly in particular is the sweetness of it. Uh, they had to celebrate the sweetness of each culture because of the bountiful amount of sugarcane and that was in Hawaii. So you see like the sweet side of Japanese and Korean very accentuated because of the availability of ingredients. And can you give us a little bit of detail? Because I'm not even sure. I don't think the sugarcane is even native to Hawaii. Like what What no. are some of the treasures? Because a lot of the things that are associated, like you were just saying, like a certain sweetness or even the pineapple are mostly imports to Hawaii. But how do you differentiate like truly native things, ingredients to typical things that even the Polynesians adapted? Yeah, Uh uh, let's say a Japanese teriyaki sauce or tare uh, with balance of having sweet wine from Japan, like mirin and sake, uh, you know, the balance of bonito and, and kombu. Uh, there wasn't really much of that available in Hawaii. So it was practically just like soy sauce and sugar as the base of our teriyaki sauce here in Hawaii. That's why you see a lot of things kind of marinated in in teriyaki and that's has become the hawaiian barbecue so to say but right those are based on imported ingredients i mean they're the raw ingredients grow well in hawaii right but they're not they they weren't there when the the polynesians arrived in the right the the islands is there one and right pineapples too are like so associated with hawaii but they they were imported as well weren't they originally right i think the the uh you know, the native food of the Hawaiians have stayed intact uh, just because a lot of that has been through, you know, gathering and foraging. So, you know, the, the native seaweeds and the salts, uh, the uh, the plants as taro and, you know, bananas. And those things are kept very, very simple, whether it's uh, grilled over kiave wood or just a or buried under, you know, some hot stones in the emu. So the native Hawaiian food has kind of stayed intact. I think everything else, the different cultures, like I mentioned, uh, later on kind of fused together and blended uh, their flavors. So you've termed these kind of specific cultural groups uh, that you talk about, the, the the influencers in your book. And I was hoping that you'd share kind of like how you think about these different influencers shaping what, you know, you're calling real Hawaii food. How did they do that? I think it was fun to, you know, tongue in cheek of using the word influencers that nowadays kids, I do high school, <laughs> high school talk stories. Is like, I want to be an influencer. It's like, okay, what is, when true, you know, in Hawaii, we had those, these true influencers and you see how they kind of change the history of Hawaii uh, in it. And, uh, you know, it was an easy way for us to connect modern with uh, with history uh, back there. So 
the influencers. Well, I love that, right? That everybody's grandmother was actually an original influencer and, and yeah. grandpa <laughs> and, and what they were king. But how do you think they did that? How did how did um how did it branch out to be something I think as you described that is accepted by Hawaiians of all backgrounds as part of the culture, even though it might have a distinct either kimchi component from Korean culture or another component mm-hmm. from Filipino culture. How, how, how do you think that ended up happening? Yeah, yeah I think it started in these neighborhoods. Uh, you know, like Hawaii is very family oriented and, you know, knowing your neighbors and helping out, uh, you know, your community is huge in part of making that whole place work uh, properly. So, you know, back in the day, my ad stories of my grandparents telling me of, of sharing food during lunchtime as they sat around uh, during lunch and they, they traded off food. My dad always wanted to trade his Filipino lunch with the Japanese man and hopefully hoping that he would get some tempura or, or a little bit of, uh, of rice noodles in exchange for his adobo and his pinak bed. And I think then eventually as, as time went on, uh, these restaurants from these communities start opening up and, uh, you start to have those things in your in your refrigerator. I I didn't know that I had kimchi in my refrigerator the whole time I grew in, growing up. You know, I'm hundred percent Filipino. I thought that was part of my culture growing up. I thought kimchi <laughs> was something that that everybody had. Until this day, I still you know I still ask like when I go to the schools is who has kimchi inside the refrigerator, and the majority of the kids uh, still do. So, you know, like we take these traditions and, and we respect each other's culture and, and, uh, and make it part of ours. Uh, and that's the Hawaii. That's, that's awesome. These lines are, are kind of erased uh, between it and we celebrate each other. No, that's lovely. I, I feel like, do you think it's also kind of a twofold, I'm piecing together, that one Hawaiian culture from the Polynesians already has a very strong community aspect to it as underlying principles of of sharing and hospitality. But I also imagine it helps when you're 5,000 miles from anywhere in the middle of the Pacific, you recognize how much you need to rely on your neighbors and friends. That is it. You know, it was uh, born, these food traditions were born out of necessity and uh, have become uh, something something that we celebrate uh, nowadays. And and do you see, like, if you could look into a crystal ball, do you imagine that this kind of set of influencers will will grow and this evolution and kind of cross-pollination of, uh, of, of food cultures will just carry on well into the future? Or or do you think because of the change – because a lot of this has to do with waves of immigration mm-hmm. for, for labor to to Hawaii, that that, that, that era is sort of over? Well, I think, uh, you know, we're trying to not let that happen. It's easy to be influenced from the outside world. Well, when something like tourism is our driving force of our economy, where we want to make things comfortable, you know, or trying to play for it for, for the, whoever's coming to Hawaii. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things that sh- as chefs feel as a responsibility is to continue these traditions and, continue it on for the keiki, for the kids. Uh, my children, I try to uh, celebrate all of our, our traditions and uh, you know, keep what makes Hawaii unique uh, of this celebration of everyone's different cultures. Uh, hopefully my kids can continue that on. You know, It was awesome a few months ago that we got to 
uh, celebrate Boys and Girls Day in Hawaii and eat mochi and and fly uh, carps in and kites in in the yard uh, and still have those traditions. That's great. So so do do you feel like if you wrote another like the sequel Cook Real Hawaii <laughs> two in ten or fifteen years time it would have a new set of influencers or, or is your hope that actually you're sort of keeping the existing traditions alive and don't don't expect them to just keep evolving and adding new components i think uh, there has been a slight you know a little bit more uh different cultures that has influenced you know there's a vietnamese culture and micronesian culture and uh it was it would be awesome to include their their traditions in this next sequel of a book that we're putting out this energy you're putting out Todd I guess we're doing another cookbook but <laughs> adding uh, to your workload as we speak I would love to uh, yeah this next one is like how how are we upkeeping these traditions from uh, you know 20 years or 100 years ago as as we continue on I think that that will be the sequel uh, this new age you know it's awesome to see chefs uh, take traditional Hawaiian uh, fare and and bring it to light in in new uh, new exciting ways. Uh, chef Ed Kenny, who is uh, chef owner of uh, Mud Hen Water, uh, the things that they're doing there, where they're taking native bananas and and burying it under coals and presenting it in this like modern neighborhood restaurant. It's I think it's awesome that there there's chefs out there that are celebrating tradition yet pushing the envelope of of modernism. Yeah, I wanted to go back to that. Your a comment about bananas because I, I interviewed the food writer B. Wilson, who was saying that in the naturally there's hundreds or thousands of variety of bananas, but in most Western countries, only one or two varieties are imported and and are grown. Does does Hawaii have some heritage bananas that you can actually get and taste the difference? Yeah, totally. There are there there's like hundred varieties of uh, heirloom. Uh, bananas that uh, the Polynesians uh, brought up with them. And, you know, red bananas, uh, cooking bananas, sweet bananas, uh, short uh, tart apple bananas that that the skin is completely black, but when you open it up, it's this beautiful, almost like uh, pudding-like consistency uh, that is just to die for. And, uh, and as we, we start to look at all these different things that the Hawaiians brought with them, the different heirloom taros uh, that, that grow in dry land, that grow in the wet, uh, wetland, uh, things that actually grow better at higher altitudes than they would uh, closer to the ocean. And uh, alongside the, the chefs, uh, first and foremost are these, these people who work the land, the, the farmers, and uh, keeping these varietals alive. They're the, one, they're the heroes of the culinary world out there in Hawaii. Well, that's great. That's great and reassuring to hear, and, and makes me look forward to. I assume you you have you certainly have to venture outside your resort to try a multitude of bananas in Hawaii. <laughs> that's it. Uh, you know, I, I I I encourage that. You know, for people who visit to Hawaii, is to, uh, yeah, we might have worked hard in in your place, and it's believe me, drinking a mai tai on the side of the pool at the hotel is a wonderful thing. But I think Hawaii and to really like, you know, share your experience of Hawaii is get out of the resorts and and see see what the communities are doing. All right. After the break, we'll come right back 
and we'll talk further with chef and restaurateur Sheldon Simeon about his new cookbook, Cook Real Hawaii. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Greetings from Cheeselandia, the ultimate community of cheese lovers. Cheeselandia is your golden pathway to the world of Wisconsin artisanal cheese, where you can immerse yourself in a vibrant society of cheese, in real life and online. Join this community of fellow travelers from all 50 states on the Cheeseway of life and enjoy member-only events. Attend the School of Cheese, pursue cheese quests, and apply to host your own Cheeselandia house party. Visit wisconsincheese.com slash Cheeselandia to join. Welcome back. We're talking to chef and restaurateur Sheldon Simeon about what defines the food of Hawaii today and his new cookbook, Cook Real Hawaii. So, Sheldon, give us more of a primer on the dishes that really, really represent to you real Hawaii food. Like, what should we know about poo-poos and poke and loco-moco and Simon? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of these dishes are uh, dishes that seem uh, very native on the on the surface. It might look very Japanese or it might look very Portuguese, but it's all these combinations of history and time that it was created in Hawaii. Uh, these fun foods that are, uh, has come out of specific moments in Hawaii, uh, like uh, the celebration of canned goods, uh, sardines and spam, you know, because of our, the World War II uh, era in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, native things like uh, the lao lao, you know, slow cooked and wrapped uh, and steamed off for eight hours uh, in this beautiful taro leaf. Um, Poke, uh, native style, uh, Hawaiian style, and then uh, spicy tuna and and, uh, what you would see in the poke markets uh, nowadays. Uh, So it's a lot of these things is through my lens of growing up in Hawaii and then, you know, being a chef of Hawaii, I'm trying to represent all these different parts of history that has influenced our food in this cookbook. Well, and I think it's great. Like the the poke bowl is has just traveled. So I can get it on the corner down here in London at this place, <laughs> but I'm sure it's not near, nearly as good. And I'm not sure where the fish comes from. But um, <laughs> like, what what's what's your favorite poke poke bowl? And does it does it represent your own like twist, or is it a really traditional one that you that a lot of people would recognize in Hawaii? Yeah, I think in a like traditional you. The poke that I like is very traditional, and I think you have to kind of grow up in Hawaii to to uh, really celebrate that. Uh, just because it's a blending of the different uh, forage seaweeds that you would find in Hawaii, and the two seaweeds, seaweed uh, lipoa and seaweed limokohu, is things that come from specific areas in the islands, and you know. A lot of families kind of keep the secret of where they harvest uh, these different seaweeds. And that's how I like my poke. Very fresh fish. uh, Just a little bit of hand-picked pa'akai, sea salt, and then those two different uh, seaweeds mixed in it. 
And, to, and, and since we're all audio, can you give us kind of a, a visual and taste description of these seaweeds, maybe in, in compared to how they, you know, w- something people would be more familiar mm-hmm. with, like like nori? Yeah. So nori has a, a umami finish, you know, very forward uh, and crisp. Uh, the, the reason why I like these two different types of seaweeds is the, the salinity and the brininess of it, too. Uh, so... Lipoa, you'd usually a lot of see it right next uh, to the river mouth. So there's this brininess of almost like the salinity of the water, kind of like uh, oysters uh, to it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to Limukohu, it's like a pungent, uh, almost iodine kind of flavor in the back in all the great ways, uh, a hint of bitterness uh, to kind of mix up uh, with the fresh saltiness and, and uh freshness of the fish so it's uh it's amazing it's again one of those things that you're lucky uh if you have a taste in hawaii to to have that and you won't find those actually in the supermarkets uh you'd have to be invited into someone's home to have that flavor of those seaweeds Mm -hmm. well it sounds very enticing for sure (laughs) we people will have to be very friendly to get those special invitations there you go and now you also wax quite poetic about Simon. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, again, Simon, oh, the noodle of Hawaii. And on the surface, it looks like ramen. But again, Simon is not will be not found in, in J- Japan. Uh, it all kind, kind of came together. Definitely Japanese-based, uh, uh, but there's influence of Chinese having, you know, the roast pork in there and maybe a little bit of Filipino uh, from the pork in the uh, in the broth, uh, but very simple, very chewy, uh, ramen-like uh, noodles. A clear broth, usually with a protein base, or maybe some pork in the background, and then always simple, maybe one fish cake, a little bit of scallions. But uh, it was my cereal growing up. <laughs> it was funny because I tell this story. Uh, that you know, I di- really didn't know what cereal was. I knew what it was, but I'd never ate it growing up. It was always a bowl of Simon that I ate for breakfast. Um, but I love it. And is would you characterize Simon as a real Hawaii food or Hawaiian? Uh, it is a Hawaii food. Uh, yes, true and true. And is that that sounds like something that is maybe easier to find and more accessible than the special seaweeds that you were talking about? Are there <laughs> plenty of places you can find to to grab some. yes yes there's uh many uh simon houses that has been open for 70 plus years uh one in particular is like palace simon over in uh, honolulu uh, a lot of the diners uh old diners that you will see you can even get simon at mcdonald's in hawaii if you're pressed to have some simon flavor it's actually pretty delicious that you go to mcdonald's and you can get simon wow well, that that's quite an, endorse, <laughs> quite an endorsement. If you, if, if uh, yeah, if you just can't find it elsewhere. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, um, maybe when you, referencing uh, uh, Hawaiians' love of, of yeah, certain canned foods. And so, what do you think is most underappreciated about the way that that local Hawaiians cook and eat? Is is, is it the the affection for spam, or is it something else? No, I think it's our uh, affection for just like respecting food for, for what we have in front of us, you know, and you make the best of what is available. 
uh, you know, for a moment in time that uh, the canned food rations was was a big thing, you know, at the turn of uh, World War II. And it became a staple. Uh, and then everyone influenced that uh, into their traditions. I grew up uh, in a Filipino household having spam cooked with carabasa uh, or or sweet uh, pumpkin that was grown in our yard and, and stewed down. Uh, the invention of the spam musubi, which is a sushi-like uh, uh, spam, so to say, sushi. Um, so you'll see like when ingredients come in uh, through the history of Hawaii and it, it's what, you, what is being used of, and its availability at that moment, it starts to become tradition, so to say. Now, are there now people producing like artisan spam or or almost any recipe or if you got sort of spam, it would be the original from Hormel in the can? Yeah, uh, I mean, Hormel is still yet uh, the largest you know, used uh, luncheon meat there is in Hawaii. Spam, you can't get away from it. But there are places like uh, Chef Keone at Kaunamana Farms and uh, Chef Rob over at Musu Bar where they're taking local heirloom uh, pigs, like these pigs that are finished on macadamia nuts and, and uh, mangoes and bananas, and then they, turn, they take those beautiful Berkshire pigs and make spam, you know, something that is so humble yet to be able to use beautiful pork and create something nostalgic is, I, I think it's really rad. And does it change the flavor profile a lot though or or does uh, it just enhance it it enhances it it has like this beautiful sweetness to it uh these guys are magicians in the way that they've kind of mimicked the the texture and the form of what spam is uh but again you knowing exactly where uh that ingredient came from and knowing that the time was put in to raise those pigs it just makes for a better experience in the end now, I was interested in your fried garlic technique. Is that a specific invention of your own, or does it have a root in Filipino cooking? What's the story behind that? Well, uh, you know, we always love topping things off with fried garlic. And at the restaurant, we will do these in 10 to 15-pound batches. Uh, but we needed something to translate into the home because I still uh, wanted our readers to be able to to have fried garlic and uh yeah it's something that we came up with uh for the cookbook and it it turned out amazing i gotta give that that props to uh my co-author garrett snyder who was the one that championed that technique and uh we then we brought it home but uh it's amazing i wish we had ability to have a large microwave and to be able to do it that way because the consistency of that fried garlic is is amazing uh again that can be done in your home. And so when you do it for the restaurant, are you doing a different method because you, you're doing it in such a large batch or what's right? The- right. We're, so we're doing it in a large pot that has about five gallons of, of oil. Uh, uh, also, you need a pot that's going to keep it from overflowing. So uh, you can literally take a bath in the in the pot that we fry our garlic <laughs> garlic in. And I think a most majority of people don't have a pot and something that can keep them safe uh, for making fried garlic. So we created that technique. 
And and the technique itself is that your your own creation? Is it kind of it's not something necessarily traditional to Filipino food or another type of Hawaiian? Correct. Yeah, that was something that we kind of came up with from uh, seeing what other chefs have have done uh, in the past. Uh, so just so that people can enjoy fried garlic at home. It sounds delicious. Actually, sorry, I'm now realizing that, especially since we're only audio. Can you just describe what, what, what's unique? Because it's a specific both technique and consistency, and then I assume it, it also slightly gives. So may, maybe just tell us what, what you do to what your fried garlic is. Yeah. So fried garlic, uh, we just take what we do is we slightly blanch it first to get uh, the harsh bitterness of the uh, garlic out. Then we put it into a bowl uh, of oil and then uh, slowly, slowly crisp it up in like 30 second intervals in uh, in the microwave. And once it gets to a beautiful golden brown, we strain it out and then uh, lay it out on a piece of paper towel. And then what you have is this very perfumey garlic oil in one bowl and then this bright, sweet flavor of fried garlic that's going to Top off whatever your fried rice, your garlic noodles, uh, your fish, that ever, whatever you're doing it. Uh, but it has all the best essence of garlic. Presumably you, 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 you start with – you take bulbs of garlic and you peel them first. And then do, do you crush them or – because or, it's very finely – like it's like Correct. a fine little topping. So when do you do the, the, the mincing or the crushing? Yes. So you would take bulbs of garlic get them peeled and then mince them in the beginning. Uh, and then you take that and then you blanch and squeeze. After blanching, you squeeze out the excess uh, water that is in the garlic, uh, put it in a bowl of just some neutral uh, grapeseed oil or canola oil. And then what we're trying to do is slowly warm up that garlic uh, to a crisp. So uh, the microwave is amazing for that, where you can control it in these, you know, 20 second, 30 second intervals and watch the garlic kind of crisp and get golden brown and then uh, strain it out uh, and let it drain on a piece of paper and it crisp right up. And it's actually an amazing technique. I love it. I love seeing people post uh, their victories uh, on Instagram uh, making and being so stoked for something as simple as fried garlic. So in the restaurant, when you're doing, because because obviously you've just described, there's multiple steps to that this technique to essentially yeah. get a flavorful topping. So it is time consuming, and you have to do it carefully. So do you use a microwave in the restaurant? No, in, in the restaurant, what we do is we'll we'll grind up about ten pounds of garlic uh, in a Roboku a food processor, or we'll do a large pot blanching techniques where it's salted water. And then we blanch the garlic very quickly, uh, chill it into some ice water. What we'll do is we'll drain that out, put that on some piece of paper towel and let that kind of air dry in the refrigerator. While that's air drying, we get a vat of uh, fryer oil or uh, in a big stainless steel pot with high sides. And then we... Uh, go ahead and deep fry the garlic in these big batches. But uh, it, it's kind of scary because of the amount of moisture that is in the garlic. And uh, it just takes a lot of a lot of room on the stove, too. So so you just and, and I presume it's easy to overdo it and then just burn your whole batch. So you need a kind of 
Yeah, it, it also has the tendency, like doing a deep fried turkey, of uh, overflowing and exploding <laughs> and going onto your stove and creating a fire. So uh, we wanted something that was much more approachable at home. So when you're making these batches, could can you is does the aroma permeate the entire like square block of where your it restaurant is? It, it does. Uh, everyone, uh, all all the offices and our neighbors have uh, tend to. Um, Learn to to love that smell. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say complain, but that's a great way to frame it. I also wanted because I like these, and you don't see them very often, and I didn't realize that they are. I, I think possibly native to Hawaii. You you talk, and I can't remember the Hawaiian name for fiddlehead ferns. Yeah, uh, so ho'i'o are our Hawaiian native uh, ferns. It's something that. Uh, I grew up having, you know, and it's it's fun because in the Philippines, you know, my grandparents would pick them as kids. So when they came to Hawaii, they're so happy to to see that. And, uh, you know, there's also fiddleheads in Japan. So these cultures that made Hawaii their home, they were so excited to see that they had things that they could forage and create uh, these recipes for themselves. And one of my, I always say this is when, when I pass, bury me in a in a ho'i'o uh, field. Uh, I don't know. I just get get lost when I'm looking for the fiddlehead ferns. You know, under under the bushes, they kind of pop out and reach for the sun, and you kind of have to kind of blur your eyes to to find them. And it's always a fun thing that we did as kids, as going to the the fiddlehead fern patch and picking some. Wow, that's a wonderful image. And so how how is there a recipe in the book of, of, of how you prepare a fiddlehead ferns maybe as a salad? Yes, uh, yeah, so we take the fiddlehead ferns, uh, we wash it very good just because of where it's growing. You've, a lot of times you see it at the edges of rivers in the marsh. Uh, you know, it'll be under a, a big canopy of, tr- of a tree. Um, so you got to get all of the dirt that is in the fiddlehead uh, washed out really well. Uh, right after that, a quick blanch in some salted water. And the recipe that we use is a very umami forward uh, salad of flavoring it with some dried squid and some dried shrimp, a little bit of seaweed, and then some fresh tomatoes and sweet uh, Maui onions uh, to finish it off. But what you have is this texture uh, from the crunchy fiddlehead firms, the chewiness, of the dried uh, shrimp. It's uh, one of our favorites. Uh, and you'll see this uh, this particular salad a lot when there's large family gatherings. Uh, uh, one thing that we celebrate in Hawaii uh, a lot is first birthdays. Uh, back in the day, uh, to have your child make it through the first year was an amazing feat. Uh, so uh, we continue that tradition of celebrating its first birthday. and. We have these huge celebrations, and you'll always find fiddlehead fern salad there. Uh, my son's birthday, uh, we had, you know, 300-plus guests there. So it was uh, all hands on deck of cleaning uh, of some fiddlehead ferns and making a big old bunch of salad. Oh, wow. Well, th- yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. All right, we're going to take another break, and we'll be back with Sheldon's Julia Moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show. 
We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Sheldon, what's your Julia moment? My Julia moment is uh, culinary school. Uh, when, you know, growing up in Hawaii, we I didn't actually know who uh, Julia Childs was until I went to culinary school. Uh, but she reminded me so much of my aunt, uh, uh, that every time my auntie, when I would cook in her kitchen, she'd always be over my shoulder and making sure that everything is tidy and clean, uh, making sure that I'm, I'm not tasting from the spoon uh, that's I'm, whatever stew or soup that I'm cooking from. So, you know, that warmness of Julia reminded me so much of my auntie Marie, who has uh, influenced my cooking so much throughout my life. Uh, she's always over my shoulder. Auntie Marie on one side and Julia Childs on the other. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, no, and I think people have said that a lot, that 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 Julia, even from teaching them on TV, it feels exactly like you described, like an aunt or a mother or a grandmother or, or maybe even a grandfather, you know, kind of standing over you, giving you advice. So I think that's a great, great connection. Thank you. And uh, thanks for joining us today all the way from Hawaii. My pleasure. Uh, this was amazing to be able to speak about the food of Hawaii, as always. Well, it was great great for us to hear about it. It was definitely a mouth-watering and entrancing journey. I'm sure everyone is, is uh, hoping they can get to Hawaii as soon as possible. So thank you again for joining us, and thanks, everyone, for listening. You can find Sheldon at Chef Wonder. And for the latest menu at Tin Roof, if you're lucky enough to get to Maui, it's at Tin Roof Maui on Instagram and Twitter. The cookbook is Cook Real Hawaii by Sheldon Simeon with Garrett Snyder and photographs by Kevin J. Miyazaki. It's out now from Clarkson Potter. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. If you're not already following the foundation, what are you waiting for? It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>